Welcome to the KBB Review Podcast. My name is Andy Davis, and this is episode 13 of season 3, and we're back with a vengeance after our mid-season break. How are you all? Long time to see. Hope you're all well. Now, contrary to what many of you are almost certainly thinking, I haven't been away representing Great Britain at the Olympics. No, easy mistake to make, given my naturally athletic physique, but no, I've mainly spent it trying to catch up on all the work I don't do because I'm doing this. I do frequently give a gold medal winning performance in heavyweight procrastination. My highlight at the Olympics actually was 13-year-old Sky Brown winning a bronze in the skateboarding. Absolutely amazing, 13 years old. You can't help but think back to what you were doing at 13 and compare yourself, and I'm not sure that in my case, watching Rent-A-Ghost is quite as impressive. Anyway, it's a very special episode to kick this half of Season 3 off as we're looking at high streets. Back in July, the government released a white paper that unveiled its plans to revitalise the high street, looking at issues such as empty premises, how to support the retailers and businesses on the high street, and the environment itself in terms of green spaces and graffiti and crime and lots of other things. I'll put a link through to the full report in the episode description and I really recommend having a look. So it's all interesting stuff, but will it work? Is the government focusing on the right things and is the high street as an entity a thing of the past and physical retail needs to be more creative in its approach? I'm talking about all this and more with top retail consultant Ian Scott. But first... We're officially now counting down to the biggest post-lockdown KBB face-to-face event, which is, of course, the KBB Review Retail and Design Awards 2021. If you haven't booked your seats and tables yet, you really need to get a wriggle on as we're down to the last few tables and when they're gone, they're gone. It's on Wednesday, September the 15th at the iconic and spectacular Liverpool Cathedral and we're planning a fantastic night of entertainment. And of course, we'll be handing out the most prestigious awards trophies in the industry. Trust me, we're throwing everything at this one as we know you all need it after the last few months. So don't miss it. Everything you need to know is at kbbreview.com forward slash awards. Right, let's talk high streets now and whether or not this new government strategy can finally crack the long-discussed issue of revitalisation and success. So I'm very pleased to welcome to the podcast retail consultant Ian Scott. Hello, Ian. Hi, Andrew. How are you? I'm very, very well, thank you. Um, I'm back in the office today. Normally I'm recording things up in my loft, so I feel very professional today. Let's start with you, Ian. Let's start with your CV. Give us the the quick 30 seconds on your sort of pedigree and background in retail. Okay, well, I've been working in and around retail for about 21 years. I spent uh, a lot of time in retail design companies as business development, ran my own company designing and building both the retail displays and store environments for seven years. And most recently, I've got involved in really looking at the trends and innovations. I was head of global retail innovation for a marketing services company called TAG, where I travel the world presenting uh, ideas and innovation workshops to companies like Lego and Coca-Cola and Estee Lauder. And for the last 13 months, I've been an independent consultant, still looking at predominantly the, the physical retail environment, how things are developing. And it's certainly been an interesting time to be observing and commenting on it. Well, it certainly is that. Yes, you're clearly more than qualified, but I think even you won't have seen anything like what's happened over the last 18 months or so, of course. So look, back in mid-July, the government unveiled this white paper. It was called Build Back Better High Streets, a bit of a mouthful. What do you think the motivation from the government's point of view is here? Why why now, of all times, do they want to focus on this high street, do you think? Well, I I think it's interesting. I, I did a podcast recently, and we called it The Perfect Storm, where... It's a unique situation where the government are losing business rates. 
the landlords are losing rent and the retailers are losing revenue. So what you have is all three key stakeholders are all suffering. So you have a unique situation where everyone wants things to improve. Um, I think, you know, there's been a lot of criticism of what the government does. And to be fair, whatever they did, they were going to get criticism because people have different vested interests here. But I think I think the challenge here is, you know, the nation of shopkeepers, as we were famously called by that little Frenchman. You know, retail is still a massive part of the economy and it has suffered. And, and it's been a very vis- uh, visible suffering as well with shops closed and boarded up. But also, you know, high streets are the central hub of most communities, for better or worse. So I think there there is a lot of interest in how you can try and rejuvenate that because you'll get a ripple effect from the high street rejuvenating because the whole community then benefits as a result. Yeah, and yeah, there's some classic bits of Boris, isn't it, in the, in the opening to the gambit of this report where he talks about putting toothpaste back in tubes and and uh, you know previous governments propping up high streets and sitting King Canute like as waves of changing habits and online retail lap around their ankles. I mean, it's classic stuff. There's a lot of verbiage going on here. Yes, but one thing that this report does sort of do that I haven't seen in others quite so much uh, is acknowledge the long-term changes in shopping habits. Uh, as opposed to try and reverse them. And, and of course, it also couples it with the short-term experiences of the of all the lockdown. So it's reflecting realities more than previous reports. Would you say that's yeah. true? It, it is. I think um, one of the interesting things that I do find, though, is, is there's a lot of talk, and the media likes to talk about how physical retail is dead. All the shops are closing. And, and I find it, you know, last year it was quite amusing to see all these research reports, even from companies like McKinsey, going online growth is massive. And I'm going, wow, that's a big surprise. The government's closed the stores. So, you know, you you can't observe long-term behaviour in a short-term environment where the biggest channel and the biggest channel by far has restricted access. You know, to, to give a sense of context, before the pandemic hit, global retail sales across all categories, 83% of all retail sales happened in a store. And right now, 75% is. So when everyone's saying physical retail is dead, it is still responsible for three quarters of all retail sales. You know, so stores are not dead. I, I have some reservations about habits changing, because when you're in a controlled environment where there's legislation and fear driving change, those aren't long term controls for behavior. My thought is, when the pandemic, I don't think it'll ever be gone. I think we're going to live with the COVID like we live with flu. But when it's under control, you've probably got six or 12 months after then to wait for the fear and concern about the, the virus and the controls to go before you can really see true retail behaviour. I don't think some of what we're doing at the moment are habits. I think they're forced necessities. So, you know, my view is we always over-exaggerate change. You know, you look at Back to the Future, you know, in 2015, we were going to be on hoverboards, you know, and, and, and it's never quite as extreme. You know, we, we, we always exaggerate change. So my view is, you know, online was growing anyway, and it was still maturing. So it was always going to increase. We've accelerated the exposure to it. So it's moved quicker. But, you know, in some sectors, it's low. It's still less than 10% for grocery, maybe 5%. In some areas, I know in China, online retail is 52 percent now, but you go out to Asia and you see they are adopting new ideas more quickly than we do in Europe. But but mostly I think it's going to settle around 20, 25 percent for online. So that's still leaving 60, 70 percent, maybe more 
for physical retail. So when we talk about the changing habits, I'm not sure there is much of a change, but we're exposed to more. But yes, coming back to what you were saying, so I've digressed a bit there, is that, yes, that there was a sense of looking at the environment before this judgment was made, which is, is new territory for the government. And, and if it's prompted action, whether I completely agree with it or not is irrelevant. I think it's important that they're taking that step. And they're talking about big sums of money to be invested to make the change. One of the things this report sort of highlights that the lockdown has brought is an increased awareness and reliance on independent retail. Do you think that's true or is this just, again, another trend that's always been going that way? I think there's always been a trend. It goes cyclicals. You know, I remember, you know, when I was a kid, many moons ago, we had the local butcher and we had the local baker, uh, the local fishmonger. And then Tesco's came along and they changed it all forever. You know, we go to Tesco's and do everything. And then we, we've seen, you know, before the pandemic, there was a shift back to authentic local artisans was the word everyone liked to use. You know, so there was a cyclical change anyway, but also the, the pandemic meant we were shopping locally. We didn't want to travel. So, you know, people who are close to us were more appealing. So we, we didn't want to travel. and We were discouraged from traveling. So, again, it was one of those things that accelerated a certain development that was coming back anyway, in my opinion. And, and a level of community, which was very much encouraged through the lockdown as well. Yeah, it, it is quite funny, isn't it? That the sense of community and that, you know, that classic stereotypical sort of British spirit that, that was always around during the Second World War sort of came through again. Uh, although most of that community was very virtual, <laughs> interestingly, because you couldn't meet up to discuss. But, you know, the likes of Facebook and LinkedIn and, and other social media allowed us to be virtually communal um, in a way that, that we probably hadn't seen before as well. And I think that has helped with, with independence, certainly, because there is a sense of certainly there's a sense of wanting to support local people because you know that independence are less well positioned to cope with financial difficulties than a big multinational. Well, let's run through some of the main points of the report here, because if you kind of boil it down, it has five main areas that it wants to look at. The first one is about it's about planning and mixed use and empty buildings. It's about taking uh, all the stores that are empty and trying to do something with them. What do you think about that? Well, I, I think, again, there's a, there's a need because, you know, you walk, I mean, I've walked along Oxford Street in London a few times and maybe 10, 15 percent of the stores are boarded up. We've got more retail space than we need. And we're now seeing people like Marks and Spencers are looking to redevelop their flagship store in, in Oxford Street to include office and accommodation. And we're also seeing John Lewis do that. In fact, John Lewis uh, want to become a landlord. They're looking at building or buying properties and renting them out, you know, and it works well for them because they, they can offer rental furniture packages as well. So we're seeing that shift. And I, I think it's a good thing. You know, there's not enough retail business to fill the high street in stereotypical terms. Personally, I think there's an opportunity here really for town centres to become proper communal hubs. So we're seeing community-based services. I know that the big Debenham store on Oxford Street, there was a serious consideration to turn all 370,000 square feet into an arts and community centre. I don't think that's going ahead now, but it is interesting to see that you, you can see these communal spaces and, and, and they are, they're coming through. I've heard of um, old, old multi-storey car parks being turned into urban farms, for example. And I can see that the high street could become a mix of retail, community space, 
office space and workspace, as in on the high street, not off the high street. And that would genuinely create a community hub. You would have this situation where you could live and work and shop and socialise right in the very centre, which is either pedestrianised or shops only for a lot of towns. I guess a big part of that is about the stuff that you can't do online, isn't it? It's the very face-to-face stuff. So if a lot of these empty shops do become cafes, for example, which obviously you clearly can't do online, but also doctors and dentists and all the other sort of uh, parts of, of what make a community tick and make a community happen. Yes, and, and, and there has been a shift with some landlords. We, well, I've heard lots of discussions about rent being based on percentage of turnover, for example. So, um, you know, trying to sort of accommodate the needs that you, you, you know, you reap the benefits when the retail is doing well and you suffer with them when, when they don't. And I think that's quite clever. There are some complications with that now because, you know, some of the savvy landlords are saying, well, we actually want a percentage of your online sales as well because we know the shop drives activity online you know and that's a great demonstration of how you know shops were historically the place you went to get the stuff and buy the product what you're finding is it's still a huge part we know of the experiential element that people are talking about where you can immerse in the brand and touch and feel and try but what it also does is is come back as a physical store is very symbiotic with things like apps social media and the website in that you might go to the store to look at it and then you might go home and buy it when you're sat on the sofa with the app in your hand. So you find in the, the, the purpose of the role of, of the store is shifting. So you're getting a lot more multi-use through the way people will interact with brands anyway as well. From the retailer's point of view here, there's lots of sort of ethereal stuff going on in this in this report, and we'll touch on some of that in a minute. But is it pretty basic stuff like rent and rates that are actually decide whether or not people can actually go and open new shops, particularly independents? Is that much more of a factor than anything else? I think it is a huge part. You know, you, with rents being quarterly, that, that was a really difficult, you know, for businesses that are set up on monthly cash flow activities you know suddenly you're paying quarter of your rent in one one big hit and and i've seen examples of that starting to dissipate yeah rent rates have always been a problem i think you know any government understandably will target easy targets for revenue so you'll find you know retailers a bit like car drivers with fuel and cigarette smokers you know they're not going to stop doing that if you increase the taxes so they, they tend to get taxed heavily. But I think, you know, coming back to that perfect storm statement, the government may need to revisit this as well, because there's no point pumping billions into regenerating the high street and then take it all back in rates that people can barely afford to pay. So they have to decide, you know, how they want to make this as a long term sustainable solution. And you've got to reverse into that because, you know, a lot of I mean, there's a lot of deals to be had. You know, I, I visited a Brompton Bikes new store in London last week. And their head of retail, Simon, just said, we, we could never have afforded this space two years ago. We've been able to expand in the way we wanted to offer, but it's become financially viable because the deals on, on space are available. So there are opportunities. And then you, you've got some other interesting developments, like, you know, like the company Souk, where you can rent space in, in prime locations by the hour. So you can be selective in some of your retail engagements. So you're finding companies like Suka and, and, and other pop-up environments where you know you don't have to invest in it full-time as well. Yeah, it's not funny because that's basically a market, right? And that's been around for, <laughs> for absolutely centuries. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah, I know what you mean. It's, it's, it's a modern version of a very old system. Yeah, And, and we see this. I remember I do a podcast with a chat called Toby Barnes, and, and he said, you know, you think back to the 70s, you know, when we were in the 80s when we were kids, 
you look at the milk deliveries, they were an electric vehicle, you had a subscription service, you returned the empties so they were recycled. I mean, it was like 40 years ahead of its time. And it disappeared at the time. If someone introduced that model now, would embrace it as, as cutting edge technology. One of their points is about supporting the businesses themselves. And obviously, the, the, there is some stuff in there about rents and rates, as you say. But one of the other things is the paradox between a sort of pedestrianising everything and making it all a very um, outside dining, widen all the pavements, you know, make it a very sort of continental approach to things. But, I mean, particularly in our sector here, kitchen and bathroom retailers, people don't really pop in and out. They go in for a long time to discuss their projects. So something as straightforward as being able to park your car is a really big issue and is actually vital for the success of things. I mean, parking is a, is a huge thing, isn't it? It, it is. I mentioned a few years ago, I, I, th- I thought it was sort of odd when a shopping centre comes up, the parking rates are the wrong way around. You should pay less the longer you stay because the longer you stay, the more you shop. Why do you penalise someone for going shopping for longer in your development? I think the challenge is the car parks are operated independently of the retailers, e- even with shop- you know, shopping malls. So you, you you don't get that symbiosis where there's an understanding. You know, I think free parking is a real important thing, but obviously there are businesses built around car parks now. So you'd be doing people out of work. But I, th- I think there would need to be some way of trying to really look at how parking works. Like you say, your, your target audience, it's a sort of destination shop. You know, the high street versions are great because I always do. I always peer in the windows of kitchen stores, you know, because it's just nice to have a look. And so you may be able to prompt some engagement. The purchasing process is more of a considered purchase. It's, you know, you won't spontaneously spend £10,000 on a kitchen. It will be considered to some extent. So is the location critical? So it's interesting. You can catch that footfall past people in the city centre or you can have the outer town site where you do have parking. But it's more of a considered journey because you have to drive there as a destination. So you've got those two different models. I think parking should be visited. Park and ride is a great idea because it reduces traffic in the city centre. But we have a different consideration now because we we need people in the city centre. And if they're coming in cars, then maybe that's one of the things that we need to accommodate rather than discourage. Yeah, and as you say, it's, it needs to be thought of as a complete whole rather than let's do the high street and then work out where they can park. Yes. Now, one of the big, one of the other parts of this is the actual the sort of public environment of the thing is is a huge part of it. And there's a there's whole sections in this report about graffiti and crime and and making the high street a very green space. Uh, there's a lot of money getting pumped into that. Do, what what kind of difference do you think that actually makes? Is it a broken window syndrome kind of approach? Possibly. You know, we, we've seen these little pocket park things appearing on Oxford Street and Regent Street with these little modular plants. Oh, I think they look nice. But if you're if you have a, a town centre that has issues with crime and vandalism, it's not going to suddenly transport things overnight because you're going to find those trees smashed to pieces for the people that want to smash things up. So, again, it's it's a nice feature and it's a nice dressing, but it doesn't fix any of the fundamental issues about that urban space around vandalism and, and theft and crime and things like that. So, again, there it's one of those things that's great to introduce when you've got everything else right. Is is my view? Otherwise, it'll just it'll just be a casualty of the of the problems you've already got. My view of it was that the kind of high streets that look nice in that sense aren't the ones that are in trouble. Yeah, you know, it's you know the no amount of, of sticking trees and cleaning the graffiti is going to fix a horrible nineteen seventies concrete high street. Yeah, uh, which is probably the, the ones that are really struggling or attract the kind of retailers to the high street that that have a certain image or a certain style that they want to sort of promote. I mean, particularly in our industry. 
you wouldn't get a sort of premium kitchen retailer in one of those kind of environments. No, I agree. One of the things that comes out of this report when you read it is that no matter how, how much they talk about it in very you know uh, top level terms, there's a lot of bureaucracy in here, right? And there's a lot of task forces and funding groups. And so much of all the things they're talking about, of course, will also fall to individual councils, right? Which I'm yes. sure will fill many retailers with dread. So do you think the infrastructure is there to actually make some of these things happen? I don't know. I mean, for decades now, I've been involved in working with the government and tendering for their work. I think the problem is some of the solutions that I've heard of around rejuvenating the high street work better and are more financially viable when you view them as a nationwide. Someone told me, and I don't quote me on it, he says putting it on record, something like 300 different councils may have budget to do things. You know, and, and, and I've spoken to a couple of people who have amazing ideas and they're having to pitch it time and time and time again. And the benefit of it is lost because you do it for one small town or one development corporation and you don't get the same impact as if you're doing it for a whole county or the whole country. And some of these systems are a nationwide type solution. So, yeah, that's that's typical of government. Uh, and I can't see this government fixing that overnight just because it's a better way of doing things, because there are people with vested interests, budgets and jobs that will obstruct that process, even if they wanted to go ahead. But yeah, I, th- I think it is a shame because, you know, there are there are some brilliant people with forward-thinking ideas on how to fix this, but their ideas aren't viable in the way that, they, that the government's going to implement it, unfortunately. Yes, I mean, it's a very conservative government approach, this, the idea that they're going to clear lots of red tape, but but the, you can't change an, an, an entire nation's infrastructure overnight for something like this, can no, you? No, you're not. What I find really interesting as well when you read through the reports, and I guess it is a government white paper and therefore it's a very, like I say, very overview, it doesn't really talk very much about what the retailers themselves could or should be doing. Because, you know, let's face it, there were some retailers when you walked down a high street that quite frankly almost deserve to go out of business because they clearly haven't updated themselves or done anything different to yeah. help that environment in any way. So what, what do you think the solution is from the retailer's point of view to try and revitalise these high streets? Well, I think, I mean, there are a number of different businesses that are set up can offer help and insight. You know, there's independent people like me, you know, can offer help. And there are different organisations as well. I think, I think um, you know, we've seen how some independents have wonderfully pivoted. You know, they've embraced Facebook and Instagram. And I've heard various stories of people whose revenues have actually increased because they've found a new audience and a new way of engaging their audience that they hadn't considered before. But certainly that understanding your customer is is absolutely critical in retail you know uh, i've often uh, held up nike as a great example of how to do retail they're one of the best in in the world uh, and i have people say yeah but i can't i i don't have the budgets that nike do i know but the principle is scalable in that if you understand what your customers are interested in and how they want to buy you reverse into it and that is a scalable solution be that going into an environment where they are spending time talking about their issues. I mean, this is classic sales tactic for any sector is you reverse into your customer's world, you have more empathy and understanding and they're more comfortable because people like to talk about themselves, which is why salespeople want to talk about what they offer, but you've got to remember your audience don't necessarily want to listen. So if you can talk about issues and and, and in a tone of voice that resonates with your customers and their issues, and their considerations, you know, that's important. We saw how the whole DIY sector grew 
you know, last year in the pandemic. And it was great. You know, you, you can imagine all these people on furlough, you know, these, these stereotypical comments here again, I apologise. But, you know, you could see men at home with their wives going, finally, you can go and paint that garden fence that you've been promising to do for two years, okay, as, as an example. You know, I moved house March last year, so I was trying to paint and decorate. And you go into the B&Q after you queued for half an hour and the paint sector was decimated. You know, they said, oh, everyone's buying paint because, you know, people are at home. So they were decorating. B&Q and home base have had a fabulous opportunity to pick up on that. You know, you can start talking about these needs and opportunities, you know, where you have a unique situation where your customers, you almost got a captive audience here. They're at home. A lot of them are still having revenue coming in because they're on furlough. They don't have the same expense. And a lot of people have bigger disposable incomes. You know, you need to leverage that and, 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 and pick up on it and make the most of it. So, you know, that awareness of those unique situations that people are in, you know, the housing sector has gone crazy in the last year with the stamp duty uh, support. But while a lot of people weren't moving, they were doing the houses up, you know, so moving into your world, you know, I don't know the statistics for specifically for your area, but I'm guessing some people have seen an upsurge in interest and in sales where people were going, well, let's do the house up while we're at home and, and, and we still have the means and opportunity. Well, the truth is, that as a market, once the, once we got past that initial lockdown, March, April, May last year, it's been absolutely flying. And it's been flying to the point where there's massive shortages of stock. And now people are planning kitchens and bathrooms well into 2022 because, A, they can't source the, the stock, and B, they can't get hold of a fitter for love and money. So, you know, it has exposed a lot of weaknesses in that sense. But, but it's a nice problem to have, I suppose, exactly. a lot of people would argue. It, well, exactly. And I, th- I think, you know, one of the other challenges and certainly the DIY guys, I, you know, my thought was you've got people coming into your store for purchases that they don't normally do, or even people that aren't normally your customer. And, and you know, I was seeing Kingfisher's results. They go, oh, they're flying. I'm going, they're temporary. There's temporary sales increases. You have a, a unique forced buying opportunity because everyone's at home. That was the time you should be surprising and delighting your customers because everyone suffers from that perception where people go, oh, I didn't realise you did that. You know, we're all pigeonholed in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a restrictive way by people's perceptions. So if people are coming into browse during those sort of controlled furloughed environments, that's when you need to capitalise and blow them away. You know, personally, I don't think the DIY sector capitalised on that. They should have been investing in their stores and communicating about all the other amazing things. When you're coming in for that fence paint, you go, oh, wow, I didn't realise they did rugs. You know, and that, that works in any sector where, you know, if you have added services, that's when you need to be communicating them when people were coming in in a way they weren't doing before. Do you think there's an argument, Ian, for... I mean, there's the millions of pounds are getting chucked at this and all the details of which which towns are getting what money all in the report. But do you think there's an argument that... Some of that cash should go, I mean, you're going to say yes here, but it should go to guys like you to actually make you a resource for the individual retailers themselves to to improve what they do, as opposed to just doing everything that's outside of their store, that they should have some investment in what's going inside their store. Well, yes. I mean, obviously, I wave my flag for, for people like me, but I think it makes sense that, you know, if the government's going to create these funds, it would it would really help if they understood the resources that are out there to spend the funds in the most effective way. That could be someone like me. It could be big organisations. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not going to tout the specific answer, but there is a resource in this country that can help utilise that those funds 
to the maximum benefit. And I don't know if there's been any thoughts on that. It would be great if the government said, let's have some workshops to understand the resources out there. Not so much individual pitches, but do we have people that can help leverage the social media? Yes. You know, are there people that can help develop the stores, tidy them up? You don't have to redesign and shop fit a store. There may be functional things like, are you opening up your windows so you can see inside? Are you communicating your key benefits in the right place? And so, yeah, it, it, it's a shame that they haven't turned around and gone call to arms here. Who can help these people develop and use this money for the maximum effect? Because that's what's needed as well. Well, okay, let's round this off here with a very sort of straightforward question that has no answer. But is it possible to save the high street? Or is it just is it just the high street as a thing? It's just not something that we can discuss. Is it too sort of retrograde to think of the high street as a centre of the community? Well, personally, I, I do think there's a future for it. It will shift a bit. Um, but it will because it's the centre of the town. Um, also, you have, like I say, Physical shopping is still three quarters of retail across all sectors and across all regions. And you have to remember as well, shopping is a social activity. You know, how, how many people go, let's go to Blue Water for the day with no specific purchase mission in mind. You go, we'll go and have a look around some shops. We'll grab some lunch, then look around a few more stores, maybe grab a move and go home. It's a day out. The, the value of human interaction is, is, has often been conveniently forgotten in the last year. We can all eat at home and drink at home very affordably why do we go to a restaurant or a pub and pay a hell of a lot more for the same thing we go for the experience and the human interaction and, and we've seen that with the relaxation and restrictions now that people have been well some people have been rushing out to socialize again because they've been denied it for so long and, and the moment you understand that human behavioral aspect we are social creatures then you know there's a place for the high street but like I say, it, it, it may look a little bit different as we move forward. But yeah, we're communal people. We need communal hubs. And a high street is one of those ultimate communal hubs, in my opinion. Well, Ian, thank you so much for this. It's just such an interesting topic. And obviously, we could talk about it for hours. But it's such a vital and important thing as well, especially if you are one of the retailers on that high street. So who knows? Maybe this is the report that is the actual answer. There's a lot of money getting spent on it, that's for sure. So let's come back in a year's time and see if it's work, shall we? Definitely. I think it would be a great idea. All right. Thanks a lot, Ian. Cheers. That was Ian Scott, and I really recommend you follow him on LinkedIn if you use it, because he basically spends his days visiting shops, big and small, and commentating on all these kinds of issues. Such a fascinating subject, and clearly hugely vital to so many independent kitchen and bathroom retailers. As I say, I'll put the link to the government report in the episode description, so let me know what you think. But that's it for this episode, and I'll be back next week. See you then. See you then.